I am Doug Friedman. And I am Meredith Levy. And this is Your Mental Breakdown. The podcast. Ah, yeah. Starring us. I look like an angel right now with this, like the sun shining behind me. You look like an angel. I know. Hello there. See how I did (laughs) that? Oh my God, dude. How did you come up with that? (laughs) How are you doing, Dougie? I'm doing all right. I'm pleased we got the colder weather. That's nice. I did not like all that massive heat we've been having well into our autumn. You know what, though? You know what's happening in just a couple of days this weekend? For the last time, just because you asked for it, we will move the clocks back in a couple of days for the last time ever. Is it for sure? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the bill passed the Senate. It's done. So we moved the clocks back this Sunday. Then in March, we moved them forward, never to be moved again. Wait, wait, wait. I did not know that was 100% for sure passed. This means yeah. I have a tattoo appointment in a few weeks and I know what I'm getting. I'm not sure exactly what, but something to do with daylight savings. The bane of my goddamn existence. I know what I'm getting. I don't know what I'm getting, but. (laughs) Oh my God. I cannot believe Uh that. Well, thanks. I can. We're done now. Bye. Anyhow. What's going on over there? Um, not too much. Spent a couple weeks up north in the Lake Tahoe area. And that was amazing. Nice. I saw a woodpecker in person for the first time ever. That was crazy. You've never seen a woodpecker? I don't think so. Really? Where? I mean, I grew up in the hills. I still live basically in the hills. There's fucking lizards and mountain lions (laughs) and shit everywhere around here and owls. But woodpeckers? Mm -mm. Don't recall hearing any of I've been on on myriad hikes and heard woodpeckers and would look up in the trees and try to spot them and spend a lot of time looking for them. And then you see them, you're like, oh, there it is. Great. I've seen them on telephone poles. Yeah, I love love spotting the woodpeckers because you can hear it for sure. No matter right, where you are. I've heard them. Yeah. yeah. You know, on a on a hike, I think like a week ago, we saw a bear. Ooh. Mm-hmm. How was that? It was fortunately uneventful. It was maybe 15 yards away from us on the trail. Beckett was off leash, came running back to me. No noise. I put him on leash because I could see the bear. It was huge. And then it just kind of went down off the trail to another section. And then I pulled out my camera and shot a little video of it, but it was... Thank God. It was close enough. Yeah, thank God I captured it on video. No, thank God it just went away. Oh, I thought, thank God I caught it on video. Isn't that the most important part these days? It sure is, apparently. (laughs) If you don't post it on social media, it didn't really happen. Agreed wholeheartedly. (laughs) Speaking of didn't really happen, I think we should just jump right into it. We've had a couple of deep ones and this is no exception so we'll we'll kind of just dive right in i will say that we cut a little bit in the beginning of sarah talking about some of the things that were stressing her out and it was sort of like when you just talk to somebody and you're venting like ah then this happened and this was going on and then this happened and so and so said this and then this broke she was kind of going off like that. And then you guys will hear, I think, in like the second line of what you actually hear in the session. 
she says the thing that's like, oh, that's the big thing. That's what's really going on. Okay. So in the beginning, she just sort of lists them and then we don't come back to them because we focus on that one thing. Yeah. And they're her listing them. Some of them were specific to family members or things that were going on. And I didn't really want to put that in there, but just know that she was kind of going off on all these things. Like all of us, I think we have like, when there's so many things going on and then we kind of hit the, oh, wait, this is the big one. That's why all these little things feel so weighty. Makes sense. Okay. So you guys listen and we'll weighty over here for you. No, that was, that was bad. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Uh, uh, I'll stop talking for about a half an hour. How's that? Perfect. Actually, that's not true. I'll be talking the whole time. Ah, man. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, you got to put up with me for a half an hour and then we'll be back and you'll put up with me some more. And, uh, bye. So much is going on. I'm sort of fighting a battle on multiple fronts at the moment. I feel like I'm holding it together pretty good. But, like, I'm taking my ex back to court, which is always hugely stressful for me. I'm trying to get this eye surgery, and I'm going back and forth with the insurance company and the doctor. I don't feel they're really doing the best that they should be doing for me. I'm telling you, Doug, if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. There's a whole bunch of moving parts. It's just, you know, all at once, it's a lot. Yeah, any one of those things is is a lot. All of those things at the same time, yeah, that can be overwhelming. What we talked about before about having some support and having some release. The release is you, Doug. Yeah, <laughs> this is <what> sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, and you need that. You know, you need to get that out. Yeah, I do. And the one thing that I'll throw in to see if you can add. It's sort of what we talked about last week in terms of connecting to the emotional piece of this stuff. And then this weekend is my cousin's memorial. So on top of all of that, I'm trying to get myself. So his, okay, I'm going to go into something now. So his dad, my uncle, gave me his cell phone, gave me my cousin's cell phone. Yes. He wants me to go through it, figure out, things that he was in the middle of, things that he was working on, you know, people, if people are still trying to contact him to reach out to them and let them know, I haven't even turned it on yet. And I promised him I would take care of it because obviously, you know, he was, I mean, he is clearly suffering. He's in a lot of pain. And for sure that I would never want to do that if it was my kid. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can totally handle it. And then I went to turn on the phone and I was like, nope, <laughs> can't handle it. I can, but I haven't yet. So it kind of feeds into my, I, I totally failed, 100%. I mean, sure, I have a couple days <laughs> to, you know, try and scramble and, and do some stuff, but I don't know that I'm in the right headspace for it. I don't know why. Every time I go to turn it on, it's sitting right on my nightstand. But every time I go to turn it on, I just immediately turn it back off and set it down. Do you remember what happened when, we've done this a few times, when I've asked you to just stop and breathe? <laughs> yep. What, what usually happens to you when you do that? I stop talking. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> and what do you start doing? Breathing. <laughs> 
Yeah, you often get weepy. You often get emotional. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to hit with this. You said a second ago, I just don't have time to get to in it. And ah, almost. That was almost the scream in a pillow. Yeah. Yeah, it was. That was the Sarah version. Right. It was a very subdued version. There is something that, some energy that you're holding. Yeah, because it's only happening in my head, the scream. That's not the same, right? I have, it has to like come out. Yeah. I will be interested in hearing for you how that experience is of letting that out that way. Well, and this was not a scream for sure, but the other night, my uncle was here at my house. Obviously, my uncle understands how much pain I'm in, but I know or imagine how much pain he's in. And there's a part of me that feels like if I'm the one who's just keeping us in a steady emotional state, I'm not helping him. Like, I, I'm making it worse somehow. We got to talking, and I, I did finally, like, have a complete meltdown really really crying and really like expressing my emotions of this whole situation where I feel angry with myself somehow and you told me you know as good as you think you are at seeing these things and noticing these things that's as good as he was at hiding it and I I heard you in my head the whole time but I just couldn't I was so I, I mean, I am so sad and still, I think, very puzzled with how I failed. It, it, and I know he was not my responsibility. I, I understand that, but it's still, it doesn't make it any better. Yeah. And, and I'll say to that, just that last piece, I don't care about that right now. Because that's the intellectual piece. The piece where you you had the Sarah meltdown. The piece where I failed. I want to I want to breathe into that for a second. We're not going to stay there, but we're going to breathe into that. You can easily distract yourself from that with all the things you can put a handle on. You can compartmentalize. You know. Um, that, that, that shirt that we're going to have the Viking funeral for at some point is the one that's, that's tattooed on you right now. Sarah can handle it. Okay. And what I, I want to impress on you is you can handle it. And that takes a toll on you and robs you of having an emotional experience of whatever it might be. Can you handle going through your cousin's phone? You can, when you see it up on your night table or your dresser, when you know it's there, when you pick it up, that's the equivalent of taking a breath and going, <sighs> that part of you that, that, that feels that, that's what I want to breathe into if we can and tell me what's going on. I will try to separate my, my sort of analog analogical mind from my emotional mind is the fact that 
had I noticed it, and this is me being emotional. This is not me being logical. This is me saying, had I noticed it, the relationship I had with my cousin was such that I know I could have helped him. I know I could have. It was almost as if cousin was me in the sense that that his he put on such a a good face. In the background, I'm a little neurotic and I have panic attacks, but I'm not killing myself. You know, drinking a handle of whiskey on a daily basis is killing yourself. But I feel like had I known this, I could have helped because we had that kind of relationship. This is the emotional part of me that struggles with that because I feel like the the biggest failure is because I believe in my heart I could have helped him. It was almost like he was just off on this little island alone. Everybody I've talked to, it was just like, yeah, you never really like knew what was going on with cousin. I almost feel like I could have, I don't know. It's like I could have helped him, but I didn't fucking know. So that makes me angry at myself because I didn't know. (laughs) And then it's just kind of a vicious cycle, I guess. It's possible that your cousin's relationship with you was one where he didn't want it to be about getting him help. Yeah. So then the only, the only reason for that would be that he wanted to kill himself. Right. Because why else would you Or he wanted to live that way. He wanted to live that way. Look, you've come to me and you want help with your life, right? And you said something that I will I will challenge you on and I I will win. You said you're not killing yourself. You're not intentionally, knowingly killing yourself. Do you know what the number one leading cause of death for Americans is? Stress. Pretty much. It's heart disease. <laughs> Yeah. Number two. And cancer. Number two is cancer. You've said to me, your words, not mine, that when you describe like your actions and what you do and the stress, you're like, yeah, I know I'm giving myself cancer. I'm not taking something in my hand and putting it into my body. And I become aware that my level of anxiety and stress is not healthy. I came to a professional because I realized it was unhealthy. He never did that, even though he knew what he was doing was unhealthy and was going to kill him. Right. That was his choice. Just like your choice is, I I, I do this and, and I stress and I take this on and I can handle anything. You can, and it's killing you. Yeah. The amount of stress that you have in your life for all of the things that you handle is killing you, not in the same way, and it is. Yeah. And you're doing something about it, yes, and it's still hard. It's very hard. You started this session by telling me about about things going on with ex-husband, going back to court, the things with your eye surgery, these things, and so many things. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of stress. That idea that Sarah can handle it, you can, and it's killing you. And you are doing something about it. Yes. Your cousin did not do something about it. He kept going with what he was doing. He didn't want help. 
that maybe he wanted the relationship with you to be what it was, you know, a bright spot of connection that he could have in his life. I don't know. What I hear for you is, yeah, but I failed, but I could have done something. And I do feel that way. Absolutely. When I did finally like feel my emotions on Saturday, sister was sitting with me the whole time. She just sat with me and she told me literally not everything you tell me, because she's obviously not a therapist, but she just kept repeating, don't you dare, don't you dare take responsibility for this. This is, <laughs> you know, and, and she kept saying it. And of course, my rational mind saying, yeah, obviously, he was not my responsibility. It almost made me even more emotional because I don't actually know why, honestly. Every time she said it, kind of like when you said you are a trauma survivor, and I was like, Eesh. you know, that maybe it's just a hard thing for me to hear. There's certain things that if I go and stop and go, oh, wow, that's actually true. I am a trauma survivor and I, you know, it is not my responsibility that yet another person in my life killed themselves, no matter how slow his process was. Oh, it's hard for me to make a peace with it. Peace with saying it was not my responsibility. He died. It's, it's hard for me to look at it. From that perspective. How is that hard? I don't know why. But I feel like it should have been, I should have seen it. I should have helped him. And I didn't, I didn't even see it. I had no idea, Doug. And this is, I, I say this with actual shock coming out of me. Because I had zero idea that he was doing this. Zero. None. I, I didn't even think he drank a lot. I had no clue. Right. It's shocking to me. Yeah. What I hear is you holding yourself responsible for that and you holding yourself to your standard. And this is something that, I don't know how this lands, you let me know, is out of your control. Yeah. I mean, it is. It is. And it was completely, 100% agree with that, but doesn't really get me to a place where, because I still think, well, it was only out of my control because I didn't see it. Get me to a place where what? Where I accept that it was out of my control, because I don't believe that it would have been out of my control had I noticed it or had I been aware. And, and it might be that he would stop drinking for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even if he did end up, if this ended up happening in the end, I would know that I did what I, you know, the best I could do. So there would be a different feeling of sadness. Slow down for a second. I would know I did the best I could do. You're talking about the best that you could do would be your attempt to save him. Maybe the best that you could do was being present for him the way you were. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe you did do the best you did and could do. And that's what he wanted. That's why he didn't tell you. 
That's why yeah. you were the one he talked to all the time, because the best that you could do was be you with him, not be Sarah can handle everything with him. <laughs> like that. I like that thought. That makes me happy. Pause, because you're about to say but. If I can turn it around in my mind to think about it that way, that would be a much more peaceful resolution or path towards resolution in my mind. Exactly. Path towards acceptance. I hope we can find that and find that to be true for you if it is. And I don't want it to be true for you because I said it and it makes sense. I felt it in my heart when you said it. I'm purposefully talking slower now because when we are slow, we hit the emotional. When you start going into, yeah, no, I could, I could, I could feel it because as soon as you said that, then I went into the, then we're going to get intellectual again. And we can do that. We can do that. That's okay. No, no, we need to not do that, Doug. Don't let me do that. <laughs> I mean, the whole reason I'm here is to not do that, right? Because I can do the intellectual with anybody. I can't, I can't do, but, but the way you shifted that was, was actually quite important to me because I haven't had a different explanation in my heart yet. You know, the way you put it was that maybe this was what you did to help him. That, that's different for me to think about. So I like that. Let's think about that for a second. And part of why I'm putting that thought in your head is so that we can think about that. You've told me that you talked to your cousin nearly every day. And how were those conversations? Usually just checking in, like, you know, they always started with, hey, cuz, either him or I, whoever started it, you know, just checking in, seeing how your day was. You know, that to bigger conversations. But most of the time, our daily interaction was just checking in. There was even a, some warning signs, you know, now that I look back, whenever I couldn't get a hold of him on any given day, I just put that down to work. When if he would miss a day, I would get this feeling like, okay, what's wrong? Because there's no reason he wouldn't just say, hey, cuz, sorry, really busy. Because he has done that before. And I'm like, no problem. Me too. Have a good one. The end. But we've communicated, right? Checking in. But when he wouldn't check in, I would get worried. And I just, I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I look back now and I, oh my God, it was because he was probably on a bender or he was, you know, in the hospital. At one point I had to call his dad to call around hospitals to find him because I hadn't heard from him in three days. And sure enough, he was in the hospital. And of course, saying it out loud, I feel like such an idiot now that I know. Because hindsight, you know how that hindsight, goes. Hindsight, of course. And, and, that, and what I hear in that is more evidence to support. And look, we don't know. We, we just, we, we will never know. Yeah. And we'll try to make sense and we'll try to make feeling out of it. And I hear more evidence that he needed and wanted you to be the one that he could talk to every day in that light way, in that hey cuz kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not somebody trying to get him to stop drinking. Makes sense. Probably people who lived with him, who actually saw him on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. 
were the ones who knew what was going on. And, you know, you're right. He probably wanted somebody outside of that to not get on him about the drinking or about the lifestyle or whatever it was he was doing. You know, part of where you are, it's, it's part of the stages of grief and, and where you are in this is, is that bargaining. Bargaining, yeah. And it's not like you pass through the stages and, and you finish and you graduate. We're not quite at acceptance yet, you know. We're still bargaining. We're still getting angry. You're getting angry at yourself. Yeah. And I certainly understand it. I think you understand it. And even emotionally, there needs to be some level of denial too. You haven't picked up that phone and gone through it because that's facing it. For sure. I don't blame you. It's a hard thing to do. You're talking with me and we're in this safe space and we're slowing down and talking about it. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Thank you for giving me, you know, possibly another way to look at it. Even if I start out looking at it with my analytical mind, that path I would have never considered. And what you're doing is normal. This is, this is what a lot of us do. When you've experienced loss and you've experienced grief and, and you're the kind of person that you are, you will try to make sense of it, try to understand it, try to see what you could have done, knowing it won't change anything that is. What is, is. We can't change it. We're looking for how we make sense of it. We're actually looking to hold something responsible, usually ourselves in some way. And that will often drive us to do even more of what you're already doing. As it gets closer to the weekend and as I, you know, think about the phone and then seeing, you know, his kids and, and you know, all my other cousins, his brothers and sisters, it starts to, you know, hit me. I think we got to recognize two different experiences that are going to happen to you, especially around the memorial. One is, you know, your your MO, your mama bear, your Sarah can handle anything and everything. I'm going to be there at the memorial for everyone else. Obviously. It is you and your MO. That's mama bear. That's taking care of my siblings. That's taking care of my kids, of course, but it's taking care of everyone. The part of you that's there for you, that's going to experience your grief. And have your release. I don't know if that will come at the memorial. It might not. No. <laughs> I hope I not. I hope it doesn't come at the memorial. I've been to memorials and, and you know, people say, Oh my God, how did you do that? How how can you how can you like speak at this and how can you keep it all together? I'm like, that's the only way I can do it. Yeah, I think I'm slowly, you know, going through my emotions out of the public eye, there's a part of me that feels like my grief is not as important as theirs. There's a part of me that feels like this is not about me and how sad I am. So I shouldn't be taking anything away from their, you know, his actual father and his brothers and sisters. It's their, you know, his children. To me, that seems wrong somehow. 
to to grieve as I would want to in front of them, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And that's part of your MO. And believe it or not, that's part of your grieving process. Part of my grieving process is I'm going to present well and hold it together for everyone else so they can all lean on me. What you do with that is going to be what defines your relationship to grief and to stress and to healing and to support. You know, am I going to collapse in boyfriend's arms at some point? Am I going to have a release with Doug? Where am I going to get that? And I want you thinking to some degree about where am I going to get that because you need to have that. There needs to be a place for you to grieve also. Not right now. Look, (laughs) this might sound weird, but I bet you can take the phone with you to the memorial and go through it at the memorial sitting on a chair there. Because <laughs> I have my brave face. Exactly. On. Exactly. It would yep. be in that mode. When it's sitting you know, on your dresser and you look at it, you have your singular relationship to your cousin and to grief when you pick up and look at that phone. That's actually very true. Huh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. No, I mean, makes sense. And all of it is okay. Yeah. You know, anybody that tells you the rules for grief doesn't know what grief is. Yeah. No, that's 100% true. It's not a comfortable place for me because I don't like surprises. I don't like uncontrolled reactions or emotions ever. So to... To have something that could just kind of pop out of me at any moment is unnerving. What I was saying to you last week about journaling, about looking at instead of why am I feeling this and and why am I having this response or this reaction to something, like being able to journal what you're actually feeling and have that connection to your emotional experience of something. Yeah. That might be hard right now. Maybe we don't want to do that right now. Okay. It's there and you will. Part of how you're you're getting through and surviving, which has been your MO for decades. Let me just do this. Let me just compartmentalize, put a handle on it and do it for whatever the thing is, whatever, whomever needs it. Yep. Just to get me to the end of this day. And then I started all over again at the beginning of the next day till the end of that day. Right. Yeah. Right. And how do you do that? You do that by barely breathing. The only deep breaths I see you take other than the ones we do together are are with a vape. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's okay because we're talking about it. We're looking at it. We're, we're, you are saying, hey, I don't want it to be this way. It is too much stress. I don't want to have cancer or you know, a heart attack. Yeah. Right? So whatever yeah. you need to do to get through the memorial, yeah, do it. We will, we will have your end of the day. We will have that process. We will have that, those moments. And you might need to be strong, not for them, but for you right now. Okay. You can be strong for you. Mm-hmm. Always. Always. And I will say your greatest strength is your vulnerability. 
And we will tap into that. I always thought that was my greatest weakness, actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a whole nother file cabinet. But yeah, that's vulnerability is a yeah, terrifying. Stop and hit that for a second. You're about to go intellectual or humorous. The word vulnerability is me at 15 when I ran away or left the cult. Vulnerability was me and ignorant and naive. All of those feelings or all of those things definitely had major impacts on, you know, the first year or two of my life outside of the cult. Those events is what made me who I am, where I am not naive and I am not vulnerable and I am not any of those things because it's not, it's not safe. It has not been. You're right. And that's what you and I are trying to very slowly experience. And you and I will be in the vulnerable if you need to not be there. And to be strong this week and get through the memorial. Okay, let's do it. But I am not going to sit here as your therapist and be okay with you getting through your life. No, me neither. I'm not okay with it either. Whatever you need to do to get through this period, we will. Because overall, we're looking at this and how you are. And I give you a lot of credit because (laughs) you're sticking with this with me today if you really look at the growth between like when i first started talking with you about my levels of anxiety yeah now yeah still all this stuff is coming at me and yes still i'm like oh i can handle it and but what i am doing is i'm starting to recognize Mm -hmm. when i'm handling something and it's starting to become more of a do I want to handle it? Do I need to handle it? Is it healthy for me to handle it? And just perspective, I think, overall. You know, it's not the end of the world. I'm not going to have a meltdown or I'm not going to lose control. Oh, yeah. How you are today in this session shows tremendous growth. But I feel like in my, in my soul, in my body, I know that a lot of things that you've just sort of planted in my mind. Before, I would never stop and take a second. I would just plow into it and the stress would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So just that difference, just that moment of breath, thought, clarity, just in my own soul, I feel it. There is a significant difference in my own, you know, body Stress-wise. You just said that to me. Say it to yourself. I feel different. I feel different. 100%. I know I'm not there. I know I have a long ways to go. I have a long way to go. And, and I am making progress and moving towards And that. I'm making progress. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. You're welcome. And we're back. We are back. And wow, some heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, I love that she just kind of ended it, like tagged it. And we'll come back to this part, but recognizing her progress. That was cool. Yeah, that was great. I was glad she could do that. Yeah. Anytime she's, anytime a lot of clients say, yeah, I've got a long ways to go. Like, yes, 
and you're going and you're doing the work and you're doing it. And like you said, she listed a bunch of stuff. I will say she said fighting battle on multiple fronts. So, okay, the ex back in court, horrible dealing with an ex court, horrible eye surgery, horrible dealing with insurance and the doctor. I was just like, are you fucking kidding? Like those things, (laughs) just dealing with insurance will put me over the edge. Just to interrupt you, because I loved interrupting you. A lot of people ask like therapists, why don't you take insurance? Insurance companies for therapists are so freaking horrible to deal with. Horrible. Not just horrible to deal with, but also horrible financially. Oh yeah. They pay us horribly. I don't take insurance, but we give bills and we get reimbursed and I'm waiting for reimbursements. Like sometimes I'll let the clients pay their portion and I'll collect from insurance companies directly. I'm still waiting for several clients for a couple of them, a year and a half's worth of insurance payments. Oh my God. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's horrible. So that being just one of the things she's dealing with. I know. And then you guys never even delved dove, whatever, delve into, uh, if you want <laughs> something done right, you yeah. have to do it yourself. We've talked about that a little bit with her before. And I definitely understand that notion because I put a star by it. And then I was like, Oh, well, our language, me and Sarah, we talk about that t-shirt because she has a t-shirt that says, keep calm. Sarah will handle it. And that's the one where I've mentioned, I want her to one day do a Viking funeral for it. Just like, no, no more. But this is that if you want something done, do it yourself. It's like, yeah, Sarah can handle it. Sarah will do it. Just do everything. I do everything all the time. That's part of the overwhelm. Yeah. So then, you know, I guess talked about her cousin's memorial. How long had it been since he passed? It's been a while, no? Well, it seems like a while for us because we haven't been listening to her every week. But no, it was not unusually long after his passing. Okay. So yeah, just the general grief of all this. And I think So her concept of, and I'm sure a lot of people feel that way, but she could have helped him and made sure that he didn't die. Like she could have taken care of it. And I think that at some point she said, if he's drinking a handle of whiskey a day, he's trying to kill himself, right? No, absolutely not. There are plenty of people who their addiction, their alcoholism is so deep and so strong. They're not trying to kill themselves. They may be, they may know that, fuck, this is slowly happening. But that certainly does not mean that if you are doing that, you are suicidal. I think I put a little of that in there when I said something about, well, it's not that he wanted to die. It's that this was his way to live. Like I can, I can get through these things by drinking a handle of whiskey. And that's why I said, look at you, you're doing the same thing. The only difference is you kind of stopped and realized, Hey, I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to, she says all the time, like, I'm going to give myself ulcers or I'm going to give myself cancer. That's why I said the biggest cause of death in the U S is heart disease. Yeah. And I think sort of like you're saying, I think it's the lesser of two evils, which is worse, living with all my thoughts and feelings or living as a severe alcoholic that is like slowly killing me. She says this all the time that she's had multiple family members and many, many people who came out of the cult who have ended their lives. And a lot of it is is what you're just saying, like there's a third option for some people Either I can live by drinking this stuff away, or I can live with all of these feelings, or I can just not live. And it's so tragic and sad. Did he take his own life or did he die from drinking? He had liver failure. Okay. He maybe could have prolonged his life with a transplant, but I don't think they allow alcoholics to get transplants. 
You have to have a year sober usually. Right. So he wasn't, he wasn't going to get a new liver. So she said she didn't know. She said she had no idea. She didn't even think he drank a lot uh, up until when? Till she found out he had passed away? No, till she found out he was in the hospital. Okay. Yeah, we had a session a while back where she had been to the hospital and it was really hard for her to look at him and to see him. And man, it was really tough because I think she was very, very sad, very, very angry. And she didn't want any of those feelings to come out at that time. Probably still doesn't at this time. Right. Well, then she said she had a meltdown with her uncle and actually like let go and had emotion and... Yeah, and that's something you get mad at me for. <laughs> like, having emotion? Say, no, you don't get mad at me for having emotion. When I, <laughs> yeah, when I tell her to stop and breathe. And even in this one, I was like, what happens when you stop and breathe? And I don't mean taking a vape breath. I mean like taking Oh my God, that was breath. so funny. You're like, the only time I see you breathe on your own is when you're breathing in your vape. I was laughing so hard. For some people, that's the only way they can take a deep breath. For her, I think the same thing about stopping and going through the cousin's phone because her uncle said hey can you go through the phone and and she nope i can't touch it sitting with the phone is the same thing with sitting with your feelings because it was going to bring that up so that idea of if i keep going i don't have to stop and breathe and let the feelings in yeah i actually still have my mom's cell phone that i haven't turned on there's nothing to like go through but i just have it and i'm like oh it also, I think, depends on how that person passes. In my case, you know, Kim ended her life. I still have her phone, but I went through a phase of trying to investigate everything and going through her phone, looking at whatever journals I could find, voice memos, all of that. This was just like, no, for her, it, it's going to make me stop and breathe and feel this. And I don't want to. Yeah. And I don't blame, I mean, I wasn't like a guess that the uncle asked her to do that. It makes sense. It's also just got to be really difficult. Well, and that's why I said later to her in the session, when we were talking about being there at the memorial, putting on a brave front for everybody else and allowing them their process. And she said, I don't want to take away from their process. Okay. I even said, I bet you could go through the phone at the memorial and be fine because you're in that mode. And in that mode, you can do anything. I don't know how her showing emotion or being really upset would take away from anyone else's process. I think for her, that's how she's able to not go there for herself. She has that thing of, if I go there, the floodgates are going to open and I don't, nope, I don't want to be like that. It's not, I don't want people to see me like this or I don't want to take away from them. Even though she said it, it's, I don't want to feel it myself because I don't know what's going to happen. Which I get. I, oh, one of the things that you said, she kept saying like, were there warning signs that I didn't? pay attention to. And then I was thinking about this and that. And you said something like, maybe he didn't want that relationship with you. Like the, let me try and get you sober. Let's talk about this kind of stuff relationship, which I thought was really insightful and sort of lovely. Yeah. I mean, I've known that professionally with people, but that's something I experienced personally when Kim ended her life or after she ended her life. And I was delving into my own grief about it and really trying to understand it. Somebody, I think, said to me, a therapist friend of mine, said, well, well, maybe she needed this relationship to not be about that, to just be about the joy in life and to be joyous. Because what Sarah had said, had I noticed it, I could have helped him. And that's something that, of course, I thought too. 
had I known this, had I known Kim was going through this, I could have helped her. Well, maybe she didn't want your help with that. Maybe she didn't want the relationship to be about that. And Sarah's cousin, I think when she described their conversations as being like, hey, cuz, you know, just talking about their day and keeping it light, he probably loved that here's some place where I can relate to somebody I love and just be light. Like not just being bipolar. Like we're talking about me being bipolar. We're talking about me being an alcoholic. Like, no, we're not. We're just talking. And I will say this for anybody that knows me listening. That's something Kim and I did talk about a lot too. It wasn't like it was unknown that she was bipolar or that she had struggles, especially it's nearly four years ago to the day. It's four years ago this week that she passed. And that's something that she had been struggling with that whole year. Of course I knew about that, not the suicidal part. So that part about had I noticed it for Sarah, it was, I had no idea my cousin was an alcoholic to that degree at all. I mean, I, did, I never even saw him drinking. That's huge. I mean, that's somebody who is actively concealing something. Or at least from her, right? Yeah. Thinking about Nicole and the people she's known or the people in her family that have taken their life. I don't want to say of course, but of course, fuck, that existence must have just been for some people living with that trauma, just like. And that's, you know, my biggest thing. You've heard me say it many times and you guys listening have heard me say it. I don't think anybody should suffer in silence. I'm all about letting that out and talking about it. It might feel worse before it feels better. At least you don't have to do it alone. And you have the opportunity to heal out loud and to heal with people. When you suffer in silence and you keep that in, it not only plays such a huge part of whatever depression or anxiety you're feeling, but it affects and impacts all the people around you, even if it seems like they don't know. Sarah's going through this, talking about like, I had zero idea. I mean, she actually, dictionary definition hit several of the stages of grief in this session. The, the shock you know, I had zero idea. I had zero idea. I didn't know, you know, and the denial and the bargaining, all of that's there. Yeah. And I think also to know that there are a lot of ways that you can deal with trauma that don't have to be verbal because sometimes verbal is just too much. And I don't know, you know, whether it's with plant medicine or whether it's EMDR, whether it's spiritually or whatever it is. I think sometimes the idea of talking about it is so overwhelming that maybe someone would rather end their life rather than have to talk about it. And that isn't the only option to process trauma, you know? I, I agree. Say a little more about that, because I think people are listening to this going, all right, well, if I don't talk about it, what else would I do? Think about the mind-body-soul connection. There's so many things that we can process. We talk about communication and how much of communication is nonverbal. I think that there are ways to process things or understand things that don't have to be verbal or even written. It can just be for some people who are artists, right? You can paint, you can sculpt, you can write a song or create music. And I think that for other people, you know, there is EMDR, which we've talked about on here before and same with plant medicine and maybe doing like an ayahuasca journey. I don't know. Most of those things are, certainly when you're talking about EMDR or plant medicine, things like that are 
They can be through a therapist. You can do plant medicine, not with a therapist, but it's looking at, hey, I want to process this trauma. I want to process something that I'm going through. Okay. The creative, artistic way to go through it is there's a nonverbal way for me to get through something and to process it. I would say that actually, maybe it does need to be verbal at some point because you can create some incredible art that is an outlet for your trauma or a way for you to kind of start to make sense of it. But to have somebody who's trained, who understands what trauma is and how it affects you, to go through that with you. Sorry, as I was saying EMDR, I just realized there is talking during EMDR. But I mean, I hear you. I just don't know that maybe it's not as effective. But for me, I think not to be an asshole, but like, what if you're mute? Like, well, if you're mute, then you know, probably you, you can write or you can sign, you know, you have other ways to communicate. I think I, I'm, I'm going to push back with you on this one, because I, I think there is something about going into it and having somebody who knows how to make sense and knows how to navigate this with you to understand it. When you're trying to just do this on your own, that can be very confusing, very overwhelming, and it can take you to places that aren't necessarily going to be healing. I guess I wouldn't say do it on your own. I would say you don't have to verbally do it, though. Whether you do your journey with a shaman or whether you do your whatever with, you know what I mean? Okay, hang on, hang on. I think I, think I can bail you out here and almost agree with you. I don't need to be bailed out, but please. I, yeah, you do. I think that maybe some of what you're saying is that you don't need to verbally and overtly discuss your trauma and discuss what happened or what you think about it. You can get to it in other ways. We can talk about it in other ways. I mean, I'm helping Sarah process her trauma from growing up in the cult. And I call her a trauma survivor a lot, which she didn't like at first. I'm not doing EMDR, which there's a set way to do EMDR and a set number of sessions for some people, questions that you go through and you process stuff a specific way. Same with, you know, I've been trained in trauma-focused CBT and how to do that. I'm not doing any of that with her. What I'm doing with her is more relational and we're talking. And I have a client that calls me a therapy ninja because you don't really realize I got in there and did something until, you know, maybe months later. Yeah, that's accurate. Like you don't have to say every detail of what happened and go through it and whatever. But yes, you guys are working on our trauma without directly necessarily working on our trauma. Yeah. And the whole idea, I mean, I remember as a maybe young teen when my mom was doing work with Vietnam vets and then she worked at a biofeedback institute doing work like that with clients. It was all about reprocessing the trauma without re-traumatizing the client. So many people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to get re-traumatized. So finding a way to talk about it that isn't going to be traumatic and that might bring stuff up. I mean, something I just put on the TikTok that somebody said, because I love, was once you start healing your inner child, nobody tells you that your inner teenager is going to come out. And man, is she pissed. It's amazing. Also, Doug, don't call it the TikTok. It sounds like you're 100. Why? It's called TikTok. Oh. It's like saying I put it on the Instagram. I say that all the time. Okay. Can we get back to the session? Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I think I still stand by what I stand by, but I also agree. Again, to me, it's all about 
don't suffer in silence. Maybe don't just internalize it and think you can figure it out yourself and handle it. And with all respect to her cousin, her cousin never said, hey, I need some help. That's what I was saying to her about, yeah, he needed you to be somebody that wasn't trying to help him. Even though she's beating herself up for not helping, I think she did beautifully for being the cousin he loved talking to all the time. For sure. He never thought of her as that one cousin who kept trying to have an intervention, for example. Yeah. As soon as he says, hey, I need help, that's going to highlight his shortcomings. I don't want to call them failures, but his shortcomings. And maybe he didn't want to see that. So let me be the one that I can be there for you, Sarah, and I can help out with these things. And I feel great. So while he was alive, she was probably a very bright spot for him and vice versa. I hope she can look at it that way and try and remember that, even though I'm sure it's very difficult, but to know that she was what he needed from her. Yeah, I think she does. I mean, she said it, I think, a couple times in the session, like, wow, thank you for giving me another perspective on this because I didn't have one before. And now maybe I do. I think everybody, when somebody dies that's close to you, everybody goes through like wanting to know that they did the best they could for that person. It's not necessarily saving them. When my dog died, I felt horrible. I was like, man, I should have been giving him better food. Even though I gave him great food, like I, I should have been cooking all his meals, which I do for Beckett. You know, I remember Kim saying, well, why? Why do you say that? I'm like, well, so he'd know that I loved him. Like, well, he did know. Oh, that's what I was trying to do with Sarah. Like, maybe you were doing the best you could do for him. And maybe that was you being yourself and not a rescuer. And that was exactly what he needed. And that was the relationship that you got to have with each other. It's something that I think we said this towards the end of the session when I mentioned vulnerability. And when I said to her, you know, vulnerability is your greatest strength. And she was like, no, I thought that was my greatest weakness. And I realized that vulnerability by definition is being exposed to, to harm or abuse. So for her, by the definition of what vulnerability is, she's right. She was in a state of being exposed to harm or abuse to everybody in the cult. That's why she left. That's why she feels that victimization that she freaking hates. I think there's another definition of vulnerability. We use that word a lot. And if you guys listen to, to Drew, he loves that. That's He said that, I think, day one that we met, talking about his vulnerability. And Brene Brown, I think, has a whole lecture on vulnerability, which I love. And she says it's a way to allow ourselves to be seen. Instead of it being like open to being harm, she's just saying, what if it's just being open and being out there and not just a way for harm to come in, but it's also a way for love and belonging and creativity and courage. All of those things can come in when you're vulnerable, when you open yourself up. Yeah. It's also scary, but yeah. So open yourselves up as much as you can. Don't suffer in silence and set your clocks back this weekend for the last Ooh. time ever. Yes. Yes. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and think of Meredith when you do. She will be happy. Please do. I yeah, will yeah. talk to you next week. <laughs> Once more with feeling. Give me some feeling in that. Say we it again, will talk Mara. to you guys next week. That's right. Get excited. Bye. Bye. Bye.